This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett, and I'm glad you found me. This is a program dedicated to the proposition that there is more to this world than you can see, hear, touch, smell, taste. It's a, a program dedicated to people like you. People who are scrabbling around in the dark, looking for light, searching for truth. And I don't have to tell you, uh, it's no easy task. Just look at us. Self-empowerment author Michael Elner wrote, Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. Doctors destroy health. Lawyers destroy justice. Universities destroy knowledge. Governments destroy freedom. The major media destroy information. And religion destroys spirituality. Sometimes sitting in this chair, behind this microphone, I feel a little like Howard Beale from Network. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work. We're scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the streets. And there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do. And there's no end to it. You remember the speech. It's true. The headlines are grim. My uh, colleague Stephen Lendman in Chicago writes, Ukraine, potential flashpoint for global war. We have Russian troops moving into Crimea. And we have neocons in Washington and their allies abroad trying to push or to pry Ukraine loose from Russia's sphere of influence. Imagine the United States telling Putin to stay out of Crimea. That's like Putin telling the U.S. to stay out of Canada. Can you imagine picking a fight with Russia? Sure, let's put boots on the ground in the Crimea and see if we can march on Stalingrad in the dead of winter. Has that ever been tried before? Hmm. Gerald Salente, a publisher of the Trends Journal, who was on this program last week, just penned an article. Putin, Ukraine, World War III, and Einstein's warning. 
You remember Einstein's warning, right? I know not what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. I don't know about you, but I have this nagging feeling that what's been happening in Ukraine going back to November of 2013 when the protests began, we're not getting the real story. We've been led to believe that this was a a populist uprising, pitting ordinary impoverished Ukrainians against a corrupt and brutal regime. And there was that uh, YouTube video that went viral. I'm Ukrainian, featuring a beautiful young Ukrainian protester pleading for the West to help Ukrainians fight for democracy. Well, it turns out that was a giant PR hoax with ties to the Council on Foreign Relations. So I thought, let's find out what's really going on over there before it's too late. And to shed some much-needed clarity on the situation, I've enlisted an old friend of the program. Webster Griffin Tarpley is one of the most incisive critics of Anglo-American hegemony. As an an activist historian, is best known for his book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, a masterpiece of research which is still a must-read. He's a 9-11 truth scholar, an activist, summa cum laude and a Phi Beta Kappa, Fulbright scholar at University of Turin, Italy, an MA in Humanities from Skidmore College. He's fluent in Italian, German, French, Latin, and Russian. (laughs) I could go on. But here, with no further ado. Webster Tarpley, how are you, my friend? Thank you, Richard. It's good to talk to you. Listen, the, the, uh, the recent events in the Ukraine, the tragic events in Ukraine, have been uh, portrayed in the West uh, by the media, let's say, as uh, essentially a populist uprising, everyday ordinary Ukrainians uh, protesting, pitted against some evil, corrupt you know, government. You see things in an entirely different light, I know. Give me, uh, give me your version in, in, in a, and break it down for us in, in simple and easy-to-understand terms. Well, people may remember 10 years ago there was the Orange Revolution in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, and that led to the creation of a government that tried rather hard to be a NATO puppet state but didn't quite succeed. But that had all the trappings of a typical color revolution with slogans and colors and uh, trendy kids camping on the square and so forth. This time around, it's much uh, uglier because the the dominant forces, I'm afraid, in this Maidan or Euro-Maidan, the occupation of the main square, have from the very beginning been in traditions, coming from traditions which we could only call fascist or in some cases, they go back to the uh, Nazi occupation of Ukraine. And in, in particular, um, the tradition that is very much alive in one of them is, is a group called Right Sector. And the Right Sector is really right. I'll tell you something more about them. But their, their tradition is a guy called Stepan Bandera, who was a Ukrainian who went to work for the uh, Nazi SS and... Um, waged war against the Soviets, and uh, and then took refuge in Munich, where he worked for uh, Radio Free Europe, and according to some accounts, he directed uh, what, what they would call guerrilla warfare, what we might call terrorism uh, today. So if we look just uh, to get to the, the current situation, right, the background is, of course, absolutely critical, but right now you have a government that it, it seems to be dominated by the 
friends of Yulia Timoshenko, the blonde woman uh, that you saw getting out of jail over this past weekend. Yulia Timoshenko, the gas princess, right? Your typical former blonde, prime minister, former prime minister former of Ukraine. Former prime minister. She was the big beneficiary of the of the Orange Revolution. She's a kleptocrat. She's the gas princess, and she counts as an oligarch. She's a she's a multi-millionaire in the hundreds of millions, or indeed a billionaire. And then she's got her two. Uh, key men there that, that she uh, controls. One is the uh, prime minister, this guy Yatsenyuk, and of course Yatsenyuk is the one we heard Victoria Nuland of the U.S. State Department, right, in her famous foul-mouthed telephone call. She talked about Yats, and Yats is uh, this Yatsenyuk, right, bald head and glasses. And then uh, the uh, the president of the country, the interim president, they call him, uh, Tuachinov. He's another uh, friend of uh, Timoshenko. So they're all from this thing called the Fatherland Party. The other guy you've probably seen is this very tall, very big heavyweight boxer. He's, according to some accounts, he is the heavyweight boxing champion of the world right now, Klitschko. And his party is called Udar, and Udar, appropriately enough, means the punch. So he's from the punch party. I'm afraid this poor guy has got, um, he's taken too many hits to the head. He seems to be a punch-drunk palooka who can hardly put two sentences together. Okay, but uh, get... let me just let me stop you there for a minute and remind listeners, Webster Tarpley is with us, uh, author, uh, historian, and uh, a critic of U.S. foreign policy, his website, tarpley.net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y.net, and you can read all his latest dispatches on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, this is not to suggest that there, there, there weren't legitimate protesters in Kiev with legitimate grievances, but you're saying that this whole movement has been, once again, as we've seen, history repeating itself, this movement has been co-opted by these far-right, some might say neo-Nazi groups. Yes, and, and I'm afraid this entire thing was much darker from the very beginning. It was, um, it, it didn't have this, excuse me, upbeat, um, you know, happy young people on a spree overtone. It, this was always rather sinister. So you got, you have this fatherland party of Timoshenko at the Gas Princess. You got the punch party of this poor guy who's, who's taken too many punches. And then you get the really ugly ones. The first one is called Svoboda, Freedom. And Svoboda is led by a guy called Chanibok. And Chanibok appears in all the academic studies of, of European neo-fascism. He's in there because of his, he's got a long track record of statements. He hates Jews above all. He is an anti-Semite. He hates Poles. Uh, he hates Russians perhaps more than any of these. Um, and um, wait a minute, though, wasn't Svoboda wasn't U.S. Senator John McCain up on a stage posing with members of yes, Svoboda? Tiny book, and it's uh, it's absolutely uh, it's absolutely outrageous. Um, the the uh, I have a friend who did a meme based on that photograph, and you see McCain thinking, "Boy, if Americans were this dumb, I'd be president." <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, yes, uh, McCain, of course, goes into these situations from the hip. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know who he's meeting. Uh, and indeed, he met some people that were even worse. So Svoboda, we might call the moderate the moderate fascist tradition, perhaps, um, with this Chanibok. But he's also got um, the, the um, interior minister. If you woke up on Saturday morning and heard that the Ukrainian interior minister 
had uh, warned that an invasion of the country was going on. You might wonder who is the uh, interior minister. And uh, that guy, Avakov, is a jailbird. He was held in Rome by the Italian police, kept in jail for some days, weeks, uh, as a result of an Interpol warrant for his arrest for uh, crimes of uh, real estate uh, uh, corruption and, and and related stuff. So it's a, this is a very mixed group. So Svoboda is already ideologically uh, of, of this uh, type. And so, then we get the most, the most extreme group, which is the right sector. And here I would just call, call your attention to two. One is uh, Yarosh, and Yarosh is someone who, over the weekend, uh, put out a call to the Chechen terrorist organization, of Doku Umarov, this is a you know these, these people are terrorists in the U.S. catalog, the British catalog, everybody's catalog, and he said, "Now the Chechens, we fought for you. We came to fight for you in in your war against the Russians, and even since, and uh, now we want you to join us because we need your help against the Russians." So okay, let me just jump in here, Webster. Webster, we'll take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve in this tragic situation unfolding in Ukraine where it appears some uh, rather unsavory, to say the least, characters have uh, taken the reins of power. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Webster Tarpley, tarpley tarpley.net. If you just uh, go to the homepage at richardserrett.com and click on Webster's name, That'll take you right to his uh, his website. Uh, now, let's just back just up a little. Just maybe one, one yes. more name. I know it's too many names, but just in this, this right sector, we did Yarosh. Yarosh is the guy who, according to the website, put out a call, his website, put out a call to these Chechen terrorists to join in the fight. Now, the, the press secretary of this right sector said, oh, no, uh, this was hacked in. We didn't really do that. But it's really academic because they have a prominent leader, the guy called Muzicho, M-U-Z-Y-C-H-O. He is documented as having gone to Chechenia during the 1990s and has uh, fought with these terrorists alongside them uh, against the Russians. And he even gives you a catalog. He says, I destroyed four tanks, three armored personnel carriers, five trucks, and two artillery pieces and so forth. So he is on record as being part of a terrorist uh, army. So I think this is interesting uh, from the point of view of people here in North America. The people who blew up the Boston Marathon are indeed, some of them, their friends, the ones they pal around with and mutually support themselves. Those are are a key part of what's going on in, in Kiev. And remember, this group, this Maidan, was twenty to 30,000 at the very most, right? On weekends, of course, in a holiday atmosphere, they could get a couple of hundred thousand people to come out, right? But Kiev is a city in the many millions, and Ukraine has something like 50 million. So 20,000 extremists, and you've seen them, right? These are street fighters, people throwing Molotov bottles, a very interesting dramatic film from about 10 days ago of a, of a right. uh, Ukrainian police armored personnel carrier being just overwhelmed by Molotov cocktails, policemen being burned alive, p- policemen being beaten, p- policemen captured, and indeed members of the army captured uh, by these people. So this is not peaceful. This is violent, 
And it's got nothing to do with democracy. There are no demands of democracy. No. There's no well, such thing. The demands Webster, are suppress the use of Russian and fire, fire Yanukovych. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Yanukovych, the, uh, the deposed uh, president. Now, uh, he, he has been portrayed as this corrupt official. We saw the, you know, the Ukrainians gleefully, um, you know, marching on his presidential palace. And, and uh, the, the Western media was making a big deal about his collection of cars and antiques and, and uh, you know, a, 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 a labyrinth of escape tunnels and, and, and so forth. And I was thinking to myself watching that, wait a minute, that's the official resident of the president. Uh, the, the members, yes, you know, right. that were part of the Orange Revolution would have lived there and had the same. And it, did uh, uh, this Yushchenko probably lived there if, if he if the if the place was acquired in time, right? Yushchenko, along with Timoshenko, those were the two darlings of the of the Orange Revolution installed by by NATO. But so was Yunico, was Yunikovich, was he corrupt? Was he uh, sure, everything? Sure, he was corrupt. But yeah. You have to remember that this this the country is is a post Soviet place, right? So. What happened in 1990 to 1991, in a nutshell, was the oligarchy of each individual union republic, and there were 16, played the nationalities card to remain in power as an oligarchy. The, the technical term is nomenklatura, right? That's the Russian term, or the old Russian term for oligarchy. Now they just call themselves oligarchs. So Yanukovych is very definitely one of them, and uh, I hold no brief for him. Uh, my name for him is Chicken Kiev. He is the the real Chicken Kiev because of his cowardice and vacillation. Uh, he, he could have essentially cleared the square uh, in November or December or in January sometime, and uh, that would have been the end of it. Right? It reminds me of the famous uh, moment when Mussolini's fascists are marching on Rome. One of the leading generals, General Badoglio, turns to the king and says, your Majesty, five minutes of gunfire and fascism will be over. And, of course, the king didn't want that. He wanted Mussolini, but uh, that is the way it is with these fascist uh, movements. The thing, the thing behind Yanukovych is that he was surrounded by these oligarchs. Uh, one of the oligarchs, uh, the richest, put out a statement in the last uh, week or so saying, we have to have a peaceful solution, no bloodshed, nothing... Not, you know, no, no, no crackdown, right? And you were dealing with things that would have been crushed in any country of the world, right? Again, burning, burning policemen, burning police cars, burning army trucks, occupying government buildings, and rather important right. ones, right. burning down the trade union building. That's an interesting one because it shows how right-wing these people are. There was another oligarch uh, who was sort of a, in the middle, uh, not really pro-Yanukovych, not against him. Uh, and he's part of this. There's a guy called Pinchuk. He's he's a great friend of Bill and Hillary Clinton. This guy has given five million dollars to the Clinton Global Initiative. So we can assume that he was counseling, uh, you know, a soft a soft line. Right. In other words, it's the appeasement of fascism. And and unfortunately, people have to remember these painful lessons. Appeasement of fascism doesn't work. They simply escalate. One other uh, guy is important. There's a guy called Poroshenko who is a chocolate manufacturer, candy manufacturer. He is an oligarch. He's a multi-billionaire. And this is the guy who paid the stipends for the people in Maidan, because they were not there on their own dime. They were getting, the, the, the humblest of them was getting $25 a day from, we think, Poroshenko. They were certainly getting this money. Okay, well, that, that... Poroshenko... 
that brings us to another issue. And uh, let me go back to that that famous YouTube video that went viral. And of course, it's the I am Ukrainian, this beautiful uh, woman. She looks like a fashion model standing in the square in Kiev saying, you know, look what is happening to my country. Please help us and so forth. And then later reports were that that was uh, produced. I thought the lighting was a little too good, you know, (laughs) but it was it was produced supposedly by this huge PR firm. What can you tell us about who was behind not only the the ma- making of that that video and this publicity campaign, but also who else was behind or who else is behind these uh, these neo Nazis that are taking over in Ukraine? Well, we we can uh, be pretty sure uh, there's not a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's lots of circumstantial, but but not so much detailed stuff. This is the U.S. Uh, NATO color revolution apparatus but again it's it's moved itself into a uh a, a more sinister light because of because of the fact that this was violent from from the word go and it was there were always uh guns and so forth and the content was always this it, you can call the content anti-semitic racist pro-terrorist because of the the uh the connections to these Chechens and indeed this fascist tradition of Stepan Bandera, right, the the, uh, the the darling above all of of the right sector. So that's all there. Um, you can see the connections into some of these oligarchs through uh, through the, the Clintons. We can be sure that this was part of the the apparatus telling telling Yanukovych don't don't do anything. And then you have the role of the Europeans, and this is actually very interesting. Uh, in the, one of the problems with Yanukovych is that he, he capitulated, he surrendered repeatedly. Uh, at the beginning of February, uh, he went on sick leave, and he tried to bring the leaders of the protests into the government. He, he offered Yatseniuk and a couple of others the prime ministership if they wanted it. With, so be Yanukovych as president and these other guys as, as the government, right? The government in the European sense of the prime minister and the other ministers, and they wouldn't do that. Uh, but the, the, and then later on, he, he made other uh, capitulations. And uh, in, in the course of this, it emerged that, that uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't interested in reforms. They, they, this was very similar to Syria, right? And was, the main demand was Assad out, Yanukovych uh, out. But he repeatedly uh, demoralized his own base by by giving in to these people, and um, in the last phase, we had a, a deal signed. What? Well, about two weeks ago, right now, and in that deal, there was going to be uh, an amnesty for everybody if they left the square in the government buildings, and that that was implemented by Yanukovych, but the the people in the square then said, "Well, we'll we'll leave here, but we'll go and seize the parliament, and we'll go and seize the other." government building. So that is that was that night of the bonfires, right? The most right, right. surreal was the was the Tuesday to Wednesday. And then we had the, uh, the snipers ago, on buildings, right? snipers on buildings shooting police snipers. Yeah, and again, and, you don't know who those snipers are, but no. it's pretty clear that they're not they're not only from from one side, right? That they're from from different sides. So at at this point um his his support collapsed because you had 67 cops who had been taken prisoner, you had army troops who had been taken prisoner and were, their lives were in danger, and then Yanukovych wanted to negotiate again. And here, this is my point that I wanted to get to, is the people who whispered in his ear were, Chancellor Merkel of Germany called up Yanukovych and said, you've got to negotiate. 
And she said, I'm sending my foreign minister. We're going to have some foreign ministers come in, and they're going to broker a deal. And apparently this awful woman, Catherine Ashton, Baroness Ashton of the European Union Foreign, uh, foreign uh, Affairs lady, she, also, she was also on the phone with the similar siren song. So in they go with Steinmeier, the foreign minister of Germany, Fabius, the foreign minister of France, and Sikorsky of the famous family, the oligarch, uh, foreign minister of, of Poland. Uh, Sikorsky's uh, wife is actually a columnist here for the, for the Washington Post. So these three, the three foreign ministers of Germany, France, and Poland, came in and sat down with the, pro- with the demonstrators, the rebels, the terrorists, whatever we want to call them, and Yanukovych, and they had a deal, uh, which was uh, elections in December and other, uh, other things that, that these uh, the protesters so-called signed off on. And at that point, the, the police forces melted away. Uh, they simply couldn't, they had lost confidence in Yanukovych. This was sort of a, uh, a week ago Friday. A week ago this past Friday afternoon, the police just hightailed it, right? They, they took French leave. They, they departed from the scene. And that meant that there was no police cordon around Yanukovych's presidential buildings. Forcing him to and flee. at that point, we had Yarosh and these other people. There's one extremist of the Maidan group whose trademark is that he carries a pitchfork with him at all times. So they were getting up a week ago Friday evening saying, we, we're going to go to the presidential building tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and if uh, Yanukovych is still there, he's going to be in big trouble. So you can see that there was a direct intervention by Germany, France, Poland. There are all sorts of stories about how Sweden is trying to reassert a sphere of influence in these areas. Remember, there were Baltic nobles in Sweden who at one point had estates in Lithuania, maybe, and some of those maybe included or not so far from, from Ukraine. So all of this, this horrendous stuff from the Middle Ages is essentially coming back. Okay, let me... That's the, that's the apparatus that did it. That's let... what uh, kept him, uh, you know... Uh, you know, so he wouldn't do anything. Webster Tarpley is with us, historian, uh, author, and uh, um, harsh critic of, of U.S. foreign policy, tarpley.net, the website. Let me ask you, uh, ostensibly this, you know, going back to November, this was about the fact that uh, 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 the Ukraine uh, or the Ukrainian government was, was trying to forge ties, or they backed away from a, a closer ties with the EU, and they wanted to forge closer ties with Moscow. That's what we're told this this is how it all started. What's it really about? Is this about the NATO intelligence and the West trying uh, to uh, to install their own puppet or uh, or pro- drive a wedge between you know Russia and the Ukraine? What's this really? What's at the heart of this? Well, concerning this this negotiation with the European Union, they were not being offered offered membership. Membership was never offered to them. They were always going to be. Uh, according to one commentator, they were going to be getting a worse deal than countries in Africa were getting, even though Ukraine is actually a European uh, country. So the deal was very bad. Uh, what was the deal? Uh, the way it works in Ukraine is the big issue is uh, heating because it's so cold, right? So you have to get natural gas. The natural gas is sold by Russia to Ukraine under a deal signed by Timoshenko, the gas princess, before she went to jail 
when she was still prime minister. She signed a deal with Putin that gives uh, Ukraine a reasonable price, right? This is supposed to be dependent on reasonable behavior, right? If you want a political price, then fulfill the political conditions. And then the Ukrainian government resells to individuals and consumers at a lower price. So they have a subsidy. They have a gas subsidy. It's like what you find in Egypt or Syria or places like this, where there's a bread subsidy and a cooking oil subsidy and a uh, heating and uh, cooking right. or methane or mazout or whatever, these, these kinds of subsidies. So Ukraine has this too. The first demand, the International Monetary Fund, which superintended these talks, uh, not just the EU, but the full troika, huh? meaning the International Monetary Fund was there too. They said you're going to have to abolish those... Uh, subsidies. This is impossible. Then they said you have to cut pensions for old people. You've got to cut medical care for old people. You've got to cut aid for children. You've got to uh, devalue the currency. And in other words, an entire brutal, genocidal, deflationary austerity program of the worst type, of the type that has failed again and again and again. In other words, they were going to get the Greek treatment and right. then some. Right. So, uh, and, and again, not even being a member. Right. You won't even get membership. Uh, and the idea was that the dumping would begin. European goods could be dumped in Ukraine. Ukraine would not get any any benefits. This this was a deal that that uh, you know nobody could could love except a NATO agent who was also you know uh, steeped in the school of Stepan Bandera and the Nazis from from the 1940s. So, All right, I got to jump. I got to jump in here, Webster. Got to jump in. We'll take another time out. We come back. I want to talk okay. about now the Russians uh, rolling into Crimea and and what uh, you know whether we are in fact on the precipice of uh, you know potentially a world war. What's going on? We'll take that up with Webster Tarpley on the other side here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. We're back with a final segment with Webster Tarpley. Tarpley.net is his website and uh, uh, Webster. Uh, the, Richard, oh, we have one one question left over, if I could, yeah. from the previous time. What is what is it really about? Well, it's geopolitics, right? If you're if you're Napoleon, if you're Hitler, whoever you are, you want to invade, you have to go through here, right? If you want to invade Russia, Ukraine is is there, and you've got to go across Ukraine, pretty much. Now, that I don't think is the immediate plan, but then there's this question of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which is giving NATO such a hard time, right? The idea that Russia can have warships show off at Tartus, say in Syria, and contest the, you know, the Mediterranean as a NATO lake. Well, it's not as long as the Russians can, can come in, which they, they do at various points in the Syrian crisis, and they ship in weapons and, and all sorts of things. So the idea, that, this, the idea that, that uh, in particular the Crimea and those ports uh, is a part of Ukraine, of course, this is historically not not the case, right? This was Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev in a moment of idiocy decided he wasn't popular enough in Ukraine, even though that's more or less where he came from. Uh, he, he said, I'll gratify the Ukrainians. I'll give them this under their administration and then they'll be, they'll be bigger and they'll like me more. This was really, really dumb. But he was a populist, so he, he did it. But of course, historically speaking, there's no question of Ukraine. There has been no Ukraine, right? Ukraine is historically important for Russia. Because the beginning of Christianity in Russia is in 988, the Grand Duke of, uh, of Ukraine, right, uh, the Ruriks, Rurik, uh, converted to Orthodox Christianity. And that is the so-called Kiev Rus. And that survived until about, well, 1240 or so with the coming of Genghis Khan and the Mongols. So there was an independent Ukraine from the 900s and, you know, and even earlier until about, in the middle of the 
1200s. But then after that, they go under the Mongol yoke and they don't come out for several centuries. And when they do, it's the Russian Empire that brings them out. But later, they're, of course, split. The Ukraine of today was split among uh, Russia, to be sure, but also among Poland. Poland was a very big uh, country. It went from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, uh, included a lot of this. And, and also with Austria getting this area of Galicia, even Romania. All right, so, so, so given Russia's obvious, you know, <laughs> a strong, the strong history in this region, what, what was Obama thinking drawing this, drawing this pink line in the sand, if we can call it that, telling <laughs> Putin that he has, you know, he has no business rolling into Crimea or, or, the Ukraine, or Ukraine? Well, on, on Friday afternoon, I, I was relieved. I laughed and laughed when I saw that appearance by Obama. I thought that was the most transparent pro forma attempt to get out of a terrible situation. Uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think Obama is the worst. Right? I think there are a lot of very foolish websites that want to tell you that Obama is the evil demiurge and so forth. I don't even think they wake him up for these things. He, he could stop it if he wanted to, and he doesn't, so that's his responsibility. But in terms of doing this stuff, I would say this is a color revolution, neocon, neo-fascist, CIA, uh, MI6, BND, DGSE operation that just goes on and on. And if you want that to stop, you've got to uh, shut them down. And you've got to defund them, break them up. And I would be all, all for doing that. But when Obama showed up at the White House on Friday and said, uh, there will be costs, what he means by costs is that he won't go to the G8. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the, the reason you can tell this is, you have these godforsaken U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and the only way they're getting out of there with their equipment is thanks to the Russian railways put at their disposition by Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Without that, they're going to have a Dunkirk retreat. They're going to get out of there with their shirts if they're lucky, but nothing else, right? So all of that equipment, tens of billions of dollars of equipment that's sitting in Afghanistan is going to stay there unless they can take it up to the Russian railheads and send it back over, over the Russian railway system uh, into Europe. So I, I don't think anything like that is happening. On the other hand, some of these people are crazy, right? Susan Rice is crazy. Um, uh, Samantha Power, the loopy one, right? The, the wife of Cass Sunstein of the Cognitive Infiltration Group. She's obviously mad as a hatter, right? She's mad as a March hare. Got about 20 uh, seconds here, Webster. And, and Kerry, I, I think Kerry should be fired immediately. If you wonder why Kerry is such a fascist sympathizer, maybe his wife is part of the picture. She grew up under Salazar fascism in Portugal, and maybe she's nostalgic for that. I often think that she is. So I would say the big thing is stay out of it. There are no Canadian interests, no U.S. interests. There's no Western interest in Ukraine. It's part of the Russian sphere. They should learn to have reasonable Governments, they should accept a kind of Finlandization if it comes to that. Right? All right. Finland did very well under that. They could, too. All right. Webster Tarpley, thank you so much for this. Tarpley.net. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. State Secrets, coming up with Nelson Thal when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it.
You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. And it is, uh, actually, we're a little ahead of schedule. Normally, in the, um, a little later in the program, we hear from our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, but uh, we've had to switch things around a little bit tonight, and so it is now time for our uh, bi-weekly segment entitled State Secrets. Nelson, how are you? Very good, Richard, and uh, things are going fine in the world. <laughs> well, one one could say that. On, on the other hand, unfolding the way they should. Well, yes, wars and rumors of war. I suppose we just heard from uh, Webster Tarpley, of course, and with an, an, a, a very a different perspective on what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you know, quite uh, quite starkly contrasted with what we're being told by the mainstream media that this is not a a populist uprising. That this is in fact uh, a far right, maybe even a neo Nazi push uh, that's taken place in Ukraine with the uh, with the assistance of perhaps NATO intelligence and and uh, certain neocons in the United States, and uh, I know well, that uh, you, you had a, a story that uh, sort of you know goes along with that line of thinking. Richard, let's just point out that first of all, the owners of the system are busily giving themselves vanity awards tonight, so we can come out and play. Indeed. And uh, in the as Marshall McLuhan pointed out, we live in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment. Uh, before we go on, we should mention that we've got a new Twitter site for everybody to look up the stories and keep ahead of these state secret stories, and it's State PsyOps, correct? Yes, that's the one, State PsyOps. That's where you, uh, if people want to uh, read these stories in more detail, they can find those on uh, the Twitter account, State PsyOps. That's yeah, that's State. the Conspiracy Show's new uh, Twitter site. So right. let's get to it. Yes, uh, all the all the different, uh, whether it's Professor Michael Chesadovsky or uh, uh, Tom Hennigan or any of the other intelligence operatives and agents that we're in touch with, uh, there's no doubt uh, this is not a matter of debatable interpretation, but the U.S. has installed a neo-Nazi government in the Ukraine. And, you know, Richard, this isn't surprising since Prescott Bush and the Bush whole gang were already in 1942 charged and arrested by the United States government 
under the Trading with the Enemy Act for uh, financing 90% of Nazi Germany's war production. So once again here, uh, all the behind-the-scenes experts know that the West is engineered through a carefully staged covert operation, the formation of a a proxy regime integrated by neo-Nazis, and um, this has been confirmed by Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland. Uh, who actually said, point, quote, is quoted, and you can go to our Twitter site and read the story, and she uh, says that she generously supported uh, the neo-Nazi party of Svoboda, which is a known Nazi, a neo-Nazi fascist uh, organization. Well, it, what's so frightening about this is that uh, you know that that uh, these these neocons would would try and pick a fight with Putin over Crimea. I think we all know that Russia is never going to give up Crimea without a fight, uh, and, yeah. and, and and that's what's so worrisome here. Yeah, the importance here. Remember, let's not forget the importance of Crimea. The Russians do not have a warm water port except from the they can go from the Black Sea through the uh, Istanbul, through that canal, into the Aegean Sea, into the Mediterranean, and then through the Suez Canal and out to the Indian Ocean. And the importance of having an access to the ocean for an empire like Russia is vital because that's how we keep the peace today, by having submarines, uh, Russian submarines off the coast of America are keeping the neo-Nazis in the White House and in control, the, the, the Bush junta, the, who've taken over control, are keeping them at bay, although you can see here they're trying to upset the Russians. So the Russians cannot lose this warm water port. They've been seeking, they sought for it for over 200 years, and they're not going to give it up, and it's foolhardy, and as we know biblically, there will be of wars and rumors of wars, see you not be worried. So th- this is much ado about nothing once again, and we're batting a thousand. People will forget about this in three weeks, Richard. Nelson Thal, media scientist here with State Secrets on The Conspiracy Show. He joins us every two weeks. Uh, well, I wanted to, to talk to you about this. Oh, well, you tell me where you want to go next. We've got a, a number of well, stories all right. to go. Well, you know, there's a lot of interesting stories that we were going to talk about. First of all, the mainstream media scientists are still trying to cover up the engineering snowstorms. And geoengineeringwatch.org has a very interesting list that people should look at. They can go there and see the list of patents at the U.S. Patent Office. And the mainstream media has responded to the explosion of public awakening with a steady stream of disinformation. None of the mainstream media stories bother to mention any credible science in their stories. They ignore the patents and they ignore the terms climate engineering, stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, solar radiation management, and stratospheric aerosol injection. All these things and the patents that are held on weather engineering And you and I have mentioned uh, Colonel Bearden's great book, Soviet Weather Engineering. All these things are being ignored by the media. Uh, I wanted to to ask you about uh, another fascinating story, and uh, this is um, a a study. Uh, It's it's about the drugging of America, if you will. 19 statistics almost too crazy to believe. Yeah. 70% of all Americans are currently on at least one prescription drugs. Americans are addicted to legal drugs. The illegal drugs get most of the attention, but Americans 
are the most drugged people in the history of the planet, Richard. And you, people can read about it by going once again to State PsyOps, our, web, our Twitter site, and they can uh, click on that link and get into the details. 70 million Americans are taking legal mind-altering drugs right now. These are prescription mind-altering drugs. Unbelievable. The next item that's very interesting on our on our Twitter site is the story about something that we've been saying for a long time, and we said it uh, last show two weeks ago and before that. But um, the the, uh, <laughs> the Americans, the Alliance for uh, uh, um, I'll get back to the name. I can't remember the alliance, but the the link is there. The GMO human embryos have already been created is what the U.S. government has now reported. At a meeting at the FDA on experiments to create GMO humans, it was released that the creation of genetically modified humans has already been done via in vitro experiments. So and we talked about how Mengele wound up in China Lake, California at the end of the war, and he was mapping the genome back in the 40s, the 50s. You take Mengele plus an electron microscope and a Cray computer, and um, you get all the clones and doubles, et cetera, that we've been talking about, that Dr. Beter talked about, and that is going on, been going on for a long time. And once again, there's a lot of Hollywood films that covered this issue, Richard. Well, the, so the FDA, they're, they're, they're talking about genetic manipulation of human eggs and embryos in order to prevent inherited uh, diseases and, and treat infertility, but you're saying that there's something far more sinister going on here. Oh, there always is. Remember, every new invention and in technology is first be, uh, created for the purpose of military uh, and for the military arsenal. So they use the it's it's it, just like the discovery of E equals M C squared. They told everybody that they were going to use it to generate electricity. Meanwhile, the first thing they did with it was make a bomb. And the same thing goes here. They're going to tell everybody, well, you'll be able to select the sex of your ch of your child, and you'll be able to use it to uh, will be able to get rid of certain diseases and breed them out. But meanwhile, what they're really doing with this initially is they're using it for military purposes to create soldiers. And of course, uh, we know that Universal Soldier was a was a movie that came out in the 80s. And this is they've been breeding these soldiers, and these soldiers have been fighting in Afghanistan. The beauty of a, a, a GMO or a a, a, dupe, a a clone is that when he gets killed, you don't have to you don't have to um, uh, advise his family because his mother and father are, are a Bunsen burner and a test tube. Well, you know, there are apparently 44 countries that have already uh, banned uh, yes. this this type of uh, genetic manipulation. They're already call, talking about what they call the Gattaca effect, where uh, you know uh, beyond sex selection, you could it's foreseeable that uh, you could use this technology to genetically engineer children with desirable physical and health traits, and and then that raises the question about. The affordability of these therapies. Uh, there might come a day when only the super rich could afford genetically perfect children. And of course, that day is today. You may be onto something there, Nelson. Well, uh, uh, I've said to you before, Richard, we have to remember that anything that comes out publicly on the internet is, is already been done.
where the public is told 50 years, as McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan pointed out, that the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret societies. He named them Rosicrucianism, Popery, Freemasonry. He talked about the secret societies. We stand on the shoulders of JFK, who did his secret society speech, called it a monolithic, ruthless conspiracy. So we stand on the shoulders of these guys, and these guys already said that by the time it goes public, it's 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 50 years later that they tell the public. Just got time for one more, and I wanted to ask you about this, you know, talking about sort of Big Brother. I think we can all agree that, you know, one shouldn't drink uh, alcohol when you're pregnant, but now in the UK they're talking about making it a crime. Drinking alcohol while pregnant could become a crime after a landmark test case. What do you make of that, Nelson? (laughs) Well, I've been saying for a long time that we live uh, now in a totalitarian, under totalitarian police rule, and uh, the judges, uh, we, there's no longer three branches of government in the United States. And when you separate, when you no longer separate the judicial from the legislative, from the executive branches of government, you put it all in one, you have despotism. And this is what the people are crying out against and what you hear about on the Internet. And what we're doing on this show is to point out to people we don't necessarily have or we don't have a fix for it, the first thing we want people to do is become aware of the problem. 90% of the solution is just awareness that we no longer live in a democracy, and this is proof that we live in a despotism state. All right, Nelson, uh, always appreciate it. And again, if people want to follow up on these stories, they'll find the links on the Twitter, State PsyOps. Yeah, our new our new Twitter site, and uh, I'll be back here uh, and hopefully uh, in on March 16th, and I look forward to it, Richard. All right, my friend, Nelson Thal, media scientist. And uh, the website, richardserrett.com, new and improved website. Uh, please uh, log on, subscribe. That'll give you access to uh, special areas as members, and also uh, we're still looking for 500 of you to sign up so that I can begin publishing the, uh, the newsletter. So uh, be on the lookout for that as well. RichardSerrett.com. Say hello, as always, on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and follow the truth. Welcome, friends. Wherever you are, my wish for you is that you are warm and safe and well-fed. And I'm honored that uh, you've invited me into your home, and I do not take this responsibility lightly. Have no, uh, have no fear, truth seekers. You are among friends, and uh, if you've listened to this program at all, you know we talk a lot about UFOs. Uh, But usually when we speak of UFOs, we're talking about the stereotypical type of craft, the kind resembling a flying disc or flying saucer, which was first introduced consciousness by Kenneth Arnold beginning in the summer of 1947. But there are other types of identified flying objects that bear little or no resemblance to this type of craft, and we're hoping to delve into this mystery with Micah Hanks, uh, the author of a brand new book entitled The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles and Phantom Projectiles in Our Skies. And uh, Tim in the uh, other studio is trying to reach Micah, uh, who is supposed to be waiting by the phone, and we're not... No, I'm getting the, the, uh, the head shaking and the thumbs down. We're not connecting with Micah. So uh, if we do, at some point in this hour connect with Micah, we will talk about ghost rockets. It's a fascinating uh, fascinating phenomena that we haven't talked about before in the program. Again, we're all familiar with the flying saucers, 
But following the Second World War, there, there were reports of sort of a new aerial technology which began to surface that was in, uh, capable of incredible maneuverability and, and one that also managed to stump the, the brightest minds among the new world superpowers. And uh, these objects have, hist again, historically been referred to as ghost rockets. But contrary to most conventional modern perspectives, this phenomenon has actually persisted throughout the decades, and it's not merely relegated to the period immediately after the war. However, Micah Hanks is not where he is supposed to be. Hopefully he'll join us later in the hour. Until then, until such, that, uh, until such time, I thought we could talk about something else, and we'll open up the phone lines on this note. This uh, story came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've been saving it for just such an opportunity. Now, I'm guessing that most of the people that listen to this program are sort of like-minded. We're all like-minded. We believe in the possibility of conspiracies. But there are probably a number of you out there listening who do not, who are skeptics or perhaps debunkers. I want to get your take on this story because a number of studies have come out recently suggesting that it is the conspiracy theorists who are sane. And those who are debunkers are perhaps government dupes, crazy and hostile. The most recent study was published on July 8th by psychologists Michael J. Wood and Karen M. Douglas of the University of Kent in the U.K., it was entitled, What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories. The study compared conspiracist, uh, conspiracist uh, and conventionalist comments at news websites. The authors were surprised to discover that it is now more conventional to leave so-called conspiracist comments than conventionalist ones. Of the 2,174 comments collected, 1,459 were coded as, a cons or as conspiracist and 17, uh, sorry, 715 as conventionalist. In other words, among people who comment on news articles, those who disbelieve government accounts of such events as 9-11 and the JFK assassination outnumber believers by more than two to one. That means it's the pro-conspiracy commentators who are expressing what is now the conventional wisdom, while the anti-conspiracy commenters are becoming a small, beleaguered minority. And perhaps because of their supposedly mainstream views no longer represent the majority, the anti-conspiracy commenters often displayed anger and hostility. The research showed that people who favored the official account of 9-11 were generally more hostile when trying to persuade their rivals. Fascinating. Additionally, it turned out that the anti-conspiracy people were not only hostile, but fanatically attached to their own conspiracy theories as well. According to them, their own theory of 9-11, a conspiracy theory holding that 19 Arabs, none of whom could fly planes with any proficiency, pulled off the crime of the century under the direction of a guy on dialysis in a cave in Afghanistan, was indisputably true. The so-called conspiracists, on the other hand, 
did not pretend to have a theory that completely explained the events of 9-11. For people who think 9-11 was a government conspiracy, the focus is not on promoting a specific rival theory, but in trying to debunk the official account. In short, this new study by Wood and Douglas suggests that the negative stereotype of the conspiracy theorist as a hostile fanatic wedded to the truth of his own fringe theory accurately describes the people who defend the official account of 9-11 and other conspiracies, not those who dispute it. Would love to get your take on this. Again, a new study suggesting that it's the conspiracy theorists out there who are sane and those who are wedded to official accounts of certain historical events are government dupes, crazy and hostile, flipping the whole thing on its head. Additionally, the study found that so-called conspiracists discuss historical context such as viewing the JFK assassination as a precedent for 9-11, more than anti-conspiracists. It also found that the so-called conspiracists do not like to be called conspiracists or conspiracy theorists. Both of these findings are amplified in the new book Conspiracy Theory in America by political scientist Lance DeHaven-Smith, which was uh, published earlier this year by the University of Texas Press. Professor DeHaven-Smith explains why people don't like being called conspiracy theorists. The term was actually invented and put into wide circulation by the CIA to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. That's actually a true story. The term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist was created by the CIA to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. So in other words, people who use the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist as an insult are doing so as the result of a well-documented, undisputed, historically real conspiracy by the CIA to cover up the JFK assassination. That campaign, by the way, was completely illegal and the CIA officers involved were criminals. Because, as you may be aware, the CIA is barred from all domestic activities. Yet, they routinely break the law to conduct domestic operations ranging from propaganda to assassinations. DeHaven Smith also explains why those who doubt official explanations of high crimes are eager to discuss historical context. He points out that a very large number of conspiracy claims have turned out to be true and that there appear to be strong relationships between many as yet unsolved state crimes against democracy. An obvious example is the link between the JFK and RFK assassinations, which both played or paved the way for presidencies that continue the Vietnam War. According to DeHaven Smith, we should always discuss the Kennedy assassinations in the plural because the two killings appear to have been aspects of the same larger crime. Psychologist Lori Manuel of the University of Guelph agrees that the CIA-designed conspiracy theory label impedes cognitive function. Well, that's interesting. The conspiracy theory label impedes cognitive function. 
She points out in an article published in American Behavioral Scientist in 2010 that anti-conspiracy people are unable to think clearly about such apparent state crimes against democracy as 9-11 due to their inability to process information that conflicts with pre-existing belief. In the same issue of ABS, University of Buffalo professor Stephen Hoffman adds that anti-conspiracy people are typically prey to strong confirmation bias. Now, isn't that what we conspiracy theorists are always, con- uh, uh, always accused of doing? Falling prey to confirmation bias. But according to this study at the University of Buffalo, the anti-conspiracy people are, are, are typically falling prey to strong confirmation bias. That is, they seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs while using irrational mechanisms such as the conspiracy theory label to avoid conflicting information. Isn't that true? How often have you been involved in some sort of a discussion with a skeptic or a debunker or an anti-conspiracy theorist. And they'll throw that label out there to stifle or to bring the discussion to an end. Well, you're nothing but a conspiracy theorist. The extreme irrationality of those who attack conspiracy theories has already been exposed by communications professors Gina Husting and Martin Orr of Boise State University in a 2007 peer-reviewed article entitled Dangerous Machinery, Conspiracy Theorist as a Transpersonal Strategy of Exclusion. They wrote, If I call you a conspiracy theorist, it matters little whether you have actually claimed that a conspiracy exists or whether you have simply raised an issue that I would rather avoid. By labeling you, I strategically exclude you from the sphere where public speech, debate, and conflict occur. But now, thanks to the Internet, people who doubt official stories are no longer excluded from public conversation. And the CIA's 44-year-old campaign to stifle debate using the conspiracy theory smear is nearly worn out. In academic studies, as in comments on news articles, pro-conspiracy voices are now more numerous and more rational than anti-conspiracy ones. No wonder the anti-conspiracy people are sounding more and more like a bunch of hostile, hostile, paranoid cranks. There you go. Would love to get your feedback, your comments on this. Again, new studies, a number of them, which find that conspiracy theorists are the sane ones. And the skeptics and the debunkers are more likely to be government dupes, crazy, and hostile. Tim, open up the phones. We'll make the lines available to you. As we await the arrival of Micah Hanks, author of Ghost Rockets, he may or may not join us this hour. In the meantime, there's you, there's me, there's the telephone, and your opinions. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and we'll talk to you on the other side. Welcome back. According to studies, those who subscribe to conspiracy theories are less married to their theories than those who accept conventional wisdom. One study showed that people who believe strongly in something are greatly offended when proven wrong, causing emotional stress that in some cases can threaten self-image. 
Pacific Standard Magazine reported on such a study. It said that because political beliefs are connected to deeply held values, information about politics can be very threatening to your self-image. So imagine coming across information that contradicts everything you've ever believed about the, the efficacy of, well, in the United States, the, the example they gave is Medicare. So the magazine report said, if you're wrong about such an important policy, what else might you be wrong about? And if you're wrong about a bunch of things, you're obviously not as smart or as good or as worthwhile a person as you previously believed. These are painful thoughts. And so we evaluate information in ways that help us to avoid them. Scientific American reported that those who are insecure about their own intellect are less likely to be able to accept information that doesn't fit neatly into their worldview. The report made the case that people might actually prefer to hear intellectually light arguments for the simple reason that they can intellectualize and articulate them better than the one giving the weak argument, and this makes them feel smarter. Might this mean that the conspiracy theorists, held in such disdain by polite society, have an intellectual self-confidence and mental stability to deal with the possibility of being wrong? Would love to get your take on this. Are conspiracy theorists really the sane ones? Randall's in Toronto. Good morning, Randall. Richard, it's Randall Montgomery. How are you? Hey, Randall. Yeah. How are you, my friend? I'm very good, and actually I'm elated to hear this news. Three research studies showing that we're not all nutcases, that maybe the people who think we're nutcases are the ones with the problems. Well, uh, a number of sto- uh, studies, as you, as you mentioned, uh, seem to be pointing that out, that uh, conspiracy theorists are sort of less married to their version of events than those who cling to the official version. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, my views on 9-11 have changed over time as I received new information. Uh, instead of thinking that it was something that was actually done by the U.S., now I think it was like Pearl Harbor where they knew it was coming but they allowed it to happen for political reasons, i.e. to start a war. So I'm willing to accept new information, but no matter what stage I was at, uh, when I talked to my friends, they all dismissed me as a conspiracy theorist. Well, um, like you, my, my, uh, my, uh, I don't know, my processing of all of this information about 9-11 has changed as well. I went through a stage where I, I firmly believed in controlled demolition, and now not so much. But And, and uh, I've taken a lot of flack for that, in fact. But to me, you know, while we're talking about 9-11, the whole theory as to whether it was, you know, they let it happen or they made it happen, it was uh, some rogue element, you know, within the United States power structure that made or let it happen, it doesn't rise or fall on controlled demolition. Right. It doesn't matter about how the buildings were brought down. Right. Maybe it, maybe it was a, a commercial airliner that flew into the north and, and another one into the south tower, uh, yeah. and they got lucky. Yeah. But that doesn't change, doesn't change the argument that there's you know, so much evidence suggesting there was inside information. Well, I think the main thing is, is to keep an open mind and look at the information and, and not just kind of have a closed mind and say, well, if you don't accept the, the official government view, you're a nutcase. I agree. And, and for so long, we've sort of sat there and we've taken it on the chin, haven't we? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have, and I'm an educated person. As you know, I wrote that book, Aliens and UFOs. I've got a Ph.D. I'm a lawyer. 
and I'm, I'm new to the conspiracy thing. It's only been a couple of years that I've been into it, and it's been like a radical transformation for me. I remember a, a fellow lawyer I shared an office with in Oshawa a few years ago. He was into this, and I thought he was nuts. <laughs> and then I kind of gradually got into it from listening to your show and writing my book, and uh, now when I try to discuss these things in a rational fashion with my friends who tend to be educated, you know, postgraduate degrees, whatever, they say, oh, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist. It just, they try to shut down the conversation that way, and it's very frustrating. We should point out uh, Aliens and UFOs, your book. Uh, people can go to the website, richardserrett.com, and uh, they can um, click on the banner ad, and that'll give you all the information you need. Uh, it's uh, available through the book locker. Now, this is interesting. Not only are you a, uh, you're a lawyer, but you have a degree in psychology as well. Well, that's why I'm so excited about what you said in the last uh, 15 minutes. I'm actually glad that your, your guest speaker is late because as a social scientist, uh, that was my first career. I'm, I'm really great. Uh, just, it's just great to hear that um, social science is getting some, uh, some respect and uh, that you know, people are, are hopefully accepting this as valuable information. Well, you, you, as you say, came late to the dance in terms of conspiracy theories by your own admission. What was it that, that turned it around for you? I, it was no real revelation, Richard. It was just gradually looking. As a scientist, you're trained to look at the evidence, you know, and you keep looking at the evidence over years and years, and gradually it just gets to the point where you think, gee, you know, there really is something there. Let's talk a little bit while we have you on the line, uh, uh, Randall. Uh, let's talk a little bit about aliens and UFOs. The, the, the subtitle is Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality. So you, you, well, you, I, just, I just spent the last week uh, revising it. I basically locked myself in my apartment and didn't go out for about five days. Spent 13 hours a day updating it, partly because of you, because you publicized that UFO truth event that was happening in Toronto with Richard Dolan, and our, our former Minister of Defense yes, uh, from the Trudeau era, and I thought, well, I've got no excuse not to go because it's right here in Toronto. And I went there, and it was inspirational for me. I got really uh, super motivated, and so I went to my U.S. apartment and didn't leave, uh, didn't leave the apartment for five days updating it. And I, I read Richard Dolan's books, and, I, you know, they're very, very uh, full of facts and very informative. So, Paul Hellier, of course. Um, right. You know, this, this is an interesting point that I've been telling all my friends. The mainstream media portrayed Hellier as a nutcase. Uh, I've read some, been reading mainstream media stuff about him for the last few years, and it talks about, oh, he thinks there's four types of aliens, and they just portray him as a nut. Well, when I heard him speak, he barely mentioned UFOs. He was extremely uh, articulate and educated and impressive, and he mainly talked about economics. And yeah, well, people... He, he mainly talked about economic solutions for our society, and there's a million unemployed youth in Canada, and, and how in 1939, when the war started, the economy turned around, and how the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada used to be part of the government. They're not now... I wished I had been able to record that. It was such a, a, a brilliant speech. It was only 15 or 20 minutes. And I thought, wow, this shows you how the mainstream media can, can prejudice people. That, that 
you know, when I went there, I thought, well, this this guy is very old and he's lost it and he's turned into a nutcase. And then when I actually heard him speak, I was extremely impressed. Well, uh, people forget, you know, he was one heart a, a beat away from being prime minister. He was deputy prime minister under Trudeau and, of course, longtime defense minister. Uh, not necessarily the most popular defense minister. He, I think he made some uh, some decisions that were not correct, you know, dividing the armed forces into three separate uh, three separate sort of, you know, uh, uh, divisions or what have you, Army, Navy, Air Force. Or, uh, sorry, unifying them under, uh, unifying, unifying yeah. it rather, under under one sort of umbrella, taking well, away the identity. Of on, on the surface, you know, it doesn't sound like a stupid idea at all, really. Well, I, I suppose, you know, we could argue back and forth about that. But um, um, anyway, it, it, it's we'll have to have you on and we'll do a, we'll, okay. we'll do a complete hour on on uh, on the books, uh, on, on the book UFO uh, uh, or Aliens and UFOs. And I appreciate you calling in tonight, Randall. Well, thanks, and I put some hard copies at Patrick White's bookstore, Conspiracy Culture, on Queen Street in Toronto. So, because a friend of mine ordered one from Richmond Hill, and he had to pay seventeen dollars and fifty cents postage from the U.S., so I thought, well, that's no good. So I'll make it available to people in the GTA a lot cheaper. All right, and I see the forward is written by Nick Pope. So, uh, uh, we look forward to reading that. Yes. Thanks, Richard. Okay, Randall Montgomery, Aliens and UFOs. All right, uh, next up we have, is it Darlene from Toronto? Hey, Darlene. Hey, Darlene. Is Darlene there? Yes. Hi there, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Good morning. I just have a question. Uh, you did something last week on eight bankers, and you said there were as many as 20? Well, uh, there have been a number of suspicious uh, uh, banker deaths. Um, I believe the mainstream media has reported on maybe four or five or six of them. Uh, but Gerald Salente recently wrote, and he said the number may be as high as 20. These are bankers that have died under very mysterious circumstances. They've been Some of them have been ruled suicides. Uh, and these are largely bankers that are uh, involved in foreign exchange uh, or the Forex uh, currency, foreign exchange currency traders and have ties to J.P. Morgan. And all of a sudden they started jumping well, off buildings. From, from the last week, I think, I'm not sure there were two more. So that might make it 10. But when they say that there's like, from from the time of your last show till today, I think there were two more. And um, I can't see anything on the 20. Is there any uh, website that tells about all 20 and maybe shows more information, more pictures on these people, you know, more about their backgrounds? Well, let me, uh, um, let me find the story. It was literally just show J.P. Morgan, and that's all they show. They don't show anything else about the... Um, personal backgrounds, and not all of them were necessarily in the financial sector. They just seemed to me to be extremely wealthy people. Uh, well, the ones that, uh, that the, uh, the biographies of the, the um, individuals that died that I read, I believe most of them were in the financial, but, uh, financial end of things. They were foreign exchange traders uh, or they had some some immediate tie to uh, to J.P. Morgan or some other, you know, um, the, major the bank. Suspicious one was the one in uh, Colorado, and they thought maybe it was a homicide because of the manner which the this was the individual that, that was found with a nail uh, yeah. was killed by the nail gun or something. Yeah, yeah, they they suspect, and he wasn't necessarily with the uh, as you said the uh, financial sector. 
he he has something to do with was it more real estate but not necessarily that's why i thought maybe if they looked to wealthy people not necessarily in the banking is usually where most of the wealthy people are but they seem to all be wealthy people where do you find out about the original 20, though? Well, uh, I didn't see names on, the, on, on all 20. I saw biographies of about a half dozen, but I believe it was Gerald Salente who was on the program last week who mentioned in an article that the number may be as high as 20. I'm not sure where he's getting that information, but I'll, I'll, I'll find that story and I'll put it up on the Twitter. Okay. At Richard Serrett. All right. Thank you. appreciate your call tonight, Darlene. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we can talk about just about anything, uh, if you'd like. But I, I would like to get back to this interesting uh, a study, or it's actually a number of studies that have come op- out over the last couple of years and uh, some more recently. And that is that it's possible that the conspiracy theorists, people like you, me maybe, people that listen to this program, we might be the sane ones. According to studies... Those who subscribe to conspiracy theories are less married to their theories than those who accept conventional wisdom. One study showed that people who strongly believe in something are greatly offended when proven wrong, causing emotional stress that in some cases can threaten their self-image. And I've always said this, that one of the problems with being confronted with uh, information that challenges everything you know or think you know. It's a dangerous idea. It deconstructs your reality. It's like having a rug pulled out from under under your feet. And so what do we do? What happens? Our basic instinct of self preservation kicks in. And so we want to avoid that ugly truth that reality. And that's what these studies are suggesting. That this is the reason that that people cling to the official version of events. Because they don't want to confront the possibility that everything they think they know about the world is wrong. We are now joined by Micah Hanks, the author of The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles, Phantom Projectiles. Oh, we're waiting for him to call back. All right, we'll do that. Thank you. Micah Hanks, uh, as I mentioned, is going to be here. Micah is a um, author and researcher whose writing covers a range of subjects that include aviation history, technological trends, future science, altered states of consciousness, unexplained phenomena. He's the host of the Micah Hanks radio program along with a weekly podcast that features his research. He resides in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, we are going to get Micah Hanks on the program in just a few moments. Are we going to take a break here, Tim? All right, we'll do that. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Following the Second World War, reports of an unidentified new and new aerial technology began to surface that was capable of incredible maneuverability and one that first managed to stump the brightest minds among the New World superpowers. These objects have been historically referred to as ghost rockets. But contrary to most conventional modern perspectives, the phenomenon has persisted throughout the decades and is not merely relegated to the period immediately after the war. Does a source exist beyond these phantom rocket technologies today? And if so, 
What is it? Micah Hanks joins us to tell us more, the author of The Ghost Rockets. Hey, Micah, how are you? Hey, Richard, how are you? Not too bad, thank you, my friend. I'm glad we found you and finally connected. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's been an interesting night here in the Graylian Bunker because uh, while the power's working, uh, the, uh, the phone lines are apparently off. I didn't realize this. The Internet is off. Uh, I've never had anything quite like this happen before. Uh, so it's a really interesting situation when you're expecting a phone call, and then all of a sudden you find out that you can't get a phone call because your phone is inexplicably dead. Maybe somebody doesn't want me talking about this. Who knows? That's what I was wondering myself. Maybe we're not <laughs> supposed to be talking about uh, ghost rockets. Well, as you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, we tend to believe that people started noticing uh, these phantom projectiles and phantom missiles just after the Second World War. And a lot of these sightings came out of places like Finland and Sweden. What's that all about? First of all, what do you mean by a ghost rocket? We're not talking about the Kenneth Arnold flying saucer here, are we? We're not talking about a Kenneth Arnold flying saucer. You know, the ghost rockets actually predate Kenneth Arnold's observation of what he initially described as being what he thought were maybe some sort of military aircraft over Washington State in 1947. He described the locomotion as being like a saucer skipping across the water because it was an erratic kind of a flight that they they tended to, uh, to, to exemplify, I guess, when he watched these things. He couldn't really put a, a finger on what exactly he was seeing. So those, of course, became the flying saucers, which really described the locomotion more than the actual shape of the craft. A year before that, in Sweden and all over parts of Scandinavia, in truth, there were reports of these objects that, in, in general terms, really resembled rockets. And so a lot of folks were really concerned about this because what we knew was that the Germans had been developing rocket technologies throughout the, the Second World War. And, of course, some of the best rocket scientists later came to work in Huntsville, Alabama, for not just the Allies, of course, but also some went to work for Russia just as well. So when we start hearing reports after the war of rockets that no one can account for that are seen over the neutral countries of Scandinavia, people naturally got a little concerned about that. And these were historically, Richard, what we call the ghost rockets. And I use that term in this book because I think it effectively defines not just what began as the ghost rockets in 1946, but in ufological terms, we're also using a term that is familiar to UFO researchers and who people who have continued to document this phenomenon, whether it be the reports of what are described as disks or saucers, or what are described as these large triangles that we continue to see today, in the book I continue to observe throughout the years reports of rocket or missile-like UFOs that are seen decades following the 1940s encounters with those initial ghost rockets that actually predated, in modern UFO terms, the saucers that Kenneth Arnold reported. Micah Hanks is uh, with us, the author of The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles and Phantom Projectiles in Our Skies. Is it a mistake, Micah, uh, to sort of lump the ghost rocket phenomena in with other sort of unidentified flying objects or the the UFO phenomena? Is it a mistake to sort of bunch them together? Yeah, I I don't really know that it's a mistake. I think that the, the important thing to remember about UFO is, you know, and this is so obvious that it seems elementary, and yet I think it's often overlooked. UFO simply means unidentified flying object. Edward Ruppelt, who was the first gentleman to actually oversee the Project Blue Book under the Air Force in the 1950s, I think beginning in around 1953, um, Ruppelt, of course, is the man who had coined that acronym. He didn't like flying saucer because flying saucer, in terms of the description of the object, didn't fit all UFO reports, and he wanted a more 
general term, something that's a little more ambiguous. Unidentified flying object simply means that there's an object seen that is unidentified, and it appears to be flying. Now, the ghost rockets, again, even the modern reports of objects that appear to be missile or torpedo or sometimes described as being rugby ball shaped, these objects are indeed UFOs in the proper usage of that term. And I don't think it's wrong to call them UFOs or to consider them alongside of the UFO reports. But what I have found, and a lot of people ask this, they say, well, look, you've got to think that there's something. You can't be so unbiased about this that you won't make a definitive statement. What are these ghost rockets? I'd liken them to something in modern terms. I would say that they're a lot like drones that we hear about. But they've apparently existed for decades and decades. And while they are indeed UFOs by definition, they may not be quite like the UFOs that we're used to hearing about, the flying saucers and the triangles and the like. Well, yes, these have, by all accounts, uh, you know, uh, smoke trails, uh, you know, coming uh, after uh, the initial sighting, uh, these smoke uh, trails blazing across the sky. Seeing that they the, the, the sightings, many of them, came shortly after the war, What's to distinguish them from, let's say, a, a, a V-1 or a V-2 rocket, which the United States went on to develop after the Germans, uh, you know, based on uh, recovered German technology? Why couldn't these things simply have been V-1 or V-2 rockets? Well, see, I think that in some instances we have to look at that. We have to take that into consideration. It seems likely that immediately following the war and immediately following the capture of German rockets, not just technologies, but also some of the scientists who were behind that technology, it seems likely that these rocket technologies were being perfected and being tested. And sure, there may not have been an official explanation given for who or why they would have been tested, but it seems only logical to assume that there was probably a human component behind that, and it had to do with captured technology. But by the same token, when we look at some of the more intriguing rocket reports, and especially those that that follow the ghost rockets of the 1940s, you know, there are a lot of reports of these objects that don't leave vapor trails or, or jet trails. And a lot of these things are doing really strange things like, you know, making an abrupt 90-degree turn in, in midair, which is a little more in keeping with the kind of exotic technologies described in some of the UFO literature. And so I can't help but look at this and, I, and wonder... Well, again, as other researchers have commented on this, Jerome Clark and a lot of great Fortean and UFO writers of the years, we're looking at something that at once resembles technology that we know to possess and that we know to exist, and at the same time behaves entirely unlike anything that we've ever seen. And that is indeed a bit of a conundrum, and that's the only thing that I can think that should be mentioned in relation to these ghost rocket technologies, is that while they appear very much like something that we can account for, and I'm Again, more of the mind that these are indeed a terrestrial technology in most circumstances. They nonetheless bear a lot of traits in terms of their their, their behavior and their erratic flight path and the like that, that are a little less easy to account for in terms of technologies that we either know to exist or would expect to exist, even on the clandestine level. All right, Micah Hank stays with us, the Ghost Rockets, and we'll discuss further when the Conspiracy Show continues right after this. We are back. Micah Hanks is with us. The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles, Phantom Projectiles in Our Skies. And uh, there seems to be an aquatic connection here where, where many of these projectiles or missiles are seen sort of falling out of the sky and invariably into a large body of water. Tell me about that. You know, that's a strange... 
all this just as well. Uh, Ivan Sanderson, the 14 researcher, he was best known because of his uh, background in zoology as a cryptozoologist, a person who studied alleged reports of creatures like Bigfoot, things like that. He also took a very serious interest in ufology. And he had noted the fact that in many of the 1946 Swedish ghost rocket accounts, rather conveniently, these objects appeared to have fallen into lakes. And I say conveniently because, well, let's look at it from one of a couple of different perspectives. One, if we're a serious researcher and we're trying to understand if there is indeed a technological, a physical technological component to all this, and these objects fall into lakes, explode, disappear, and we can never recover any shrapnel, that makes it very difficult for us to account for it in physical, logistical terms. Uh, by the same token, if this is a phenomenon that is trying to conceal itself or operate, or if whoever's controlling it is trying to conceal it, they are able to possibly do so uh, with greater ease by steering these objects, if we want to consider them to be some sort of a remotely controlled drone or anything along those lines, into locations like large lakes where they are less likely to be able to be recovered with ease. And so. I think that with the early ghost rocket reports, yeah, there were a lot of instances where these things were alleged, allegedly seen streaking across the sky, and then they land into a lake or they explode into a lake, and subsequent investigation turned up no results. And this is the very reason why, and this is very important, that despite the fact that the Swedish government put together a panel of experts to officially investigate the ghost rockets and their origins... There was no scientific determination made as to what they were, where they were from, or who might be operating them. They couldn't account for it scientifically, and therefore they had to just chalk the entire thing up to war nerves. This was important because, of course, what we see here is before there was a term applied to this, like UFO or flying saucer, here we had the Swedish government investigating this phenomenon. In other words, we had the first official U.S. or it wasn't the U.S. government, but it was a, a UFO group that was maintained by government that was investigating unexplained aerial phenomena. And they came to the same determination, essentially, that what we saw later in you know, subsequent years, including the, the RAND Corporation and the uh, University of Colorado UFO Project, uh, i.e. the Condon Report, they all came to similar determinations that we didn't have enough hard proof to back up that there was an actual phenomenon. That didn't mean necessarily that there wasn't a phenomenon, but there was this element to it that seemed to escape us. And if indeed these craft, whatever they were, were physical, their disappearance into locations like lakes made it a lot more difficult for people to be able to gather hard physical evidence to substantiate what they were hoping to try and study. Well, even with the, uh, the, the UFO, the flying saucer, uh, phenomena. We have, you know, reports of uh, debris fields. Of course, Roswell being the uh, the most famous of the, of those, uh, and and uh, there have been those who claim that they have recovered, uh, you know, bits and pieces, uh, strange materials. Uh, um, you know, the the memory the memory metal that you can crumple it up into a ball and it bounces or it, it reforms and so forth. Uh, are there any such? Um, uh, claims when it comes to these phantom rockets or ghost rockets, that people believe that they have actual physical material recovered from a crash? You know, it's, it's difficult to say because I think that in, in basic terms, when it comes to recovery of any kind of physical evidence of a crash like this, uh, again, when we look historically at the ghost rocket reports, uh, that was the initial problem that, that the researchers faced, is that they did not have physical evidence. And it's as important to 
point out in, in, the, in the broader terms of UFO research in general, because when we look at UFOs and the idea of UFO research, we're often faced with the potential for there to be some sort of a technology and something, again, that appears to be extremely exotic in its operation, and yet it also appears to be something that we can't put a finger on. We don't have, at very least in terms of what we know to exist on a conventional level, an actual UFO that's been recovered from a crash. Now, a lot of people would hear me say that, Richard, and say, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Whatever happened at Roswell? You know, what are they keeping over there right at Patterson Air Force Base? You know, what are the bodies that are being kept on ice? And it's not entirely in the spirit of denouncing or, or, you know, excluding from the conversation those reports that I say that we don't have hard evidence. But I think that we have to, in terms of looking critically at what we know to exist and what we can truly account for fully, we don't have a lot of really good, really good factual historical data that seems to back up the idea that there are you know, crash retrievals and things like that that our government are working with. That could be the possibility. And, you know, on a program like the Conspiracy Show, we have to examine that conspiratorial angle as a possibility. But history does not tell us that that is precisely what has happened. We don't have scientific evidence that seems to back that up. We have individuals like John Alexander who've come and gone over the years and who maintain today that, well, you know, having worked in government, I can tell you resolutely I've tried and tried with the advanced physics project to uh, to try and garner attention from intelligence agencies that might be interested in looking at UFOs and try and get them to take this subject seriously, and they simply won't. The government doesn't seem to be very interested in UFOs at all. If, if this is the case, if we begin to put this narrative together over time and we begin to look at it and take it for what it seems to be, it seems to be that we are dealing with what I think truly is a phenomenon, but that we have very little hard evidence to support, and that presents a real problem because continually people say, why does science ignore this? Why do they disclude this? Well, I think quite simply, they want something that they can touch and turn in their hands and look at under a microscope, and we haven't gotten that yet. Whether or not there is something out there that exists along those lines, your guess may be as good as mine, but as far as you and I know and can account for, it doesn't exist. That's the official explanation, and therefore I think that's created not only a lot of problems, but a lot of contentious debate in this field for years and years. Oh, as with the, uh, the, the UFO uh, phenomena, there seems to be a lot of sightings of these ghost rockets on the part of commercial airline pilots. Talk to me some, uh, about some of the more recent sightings. You know, the most recent that comes to mind is actually a case that uh, was reported over, I believe, the UK just last summer. And again, I'd mentioned earlier during the interview uh, a report of a what was described as a flying rugby ball, <laughs> essentially kind of a football-shaped object that was seen moving dangerously close to a commercial aircraft in flight. Now, um, this is not a unique case as far as my own research has shown. I think that uh, you know the British uh, news sources, I think the Guardian and the Telegraph had all talked about this, and of course as more information came out, the altitude at which the aircraft in question, the commercial airliner, had encountered this alleged flying rugby ball, also described as a cigar-shaped or torpedo-shaped object, you know, this didn't seem to be something that uh, they could account for in terms of a natural phenomenon. It didn't appear to be a drone. The, the pilot that witnessed it said that this object, whatever it was, was appearing to travel so quickly and so directly toward them that he was bracing himself for a collision when he first spotted it. 
and that this thing must have literally missed his aircraft by just a few feet. Uh, this, again, is not something that you hear reported very frequently in mainstream news sources like this case had been. And, you know, for people who'd like to, to read more about that, at my website, micahanks.com, I've actually got a couple of articles that talk about that, um, along with some images and things like that. But, you know, in, in my research for the Ghost Rockets book, this is actually quite a common scenario. Where we find the data that backs up this this emerging narrative and the similarity between these reports is what's interesting. There is a website uh, that is actually a database that is maintained by NASA. It's called the Aviation Safety Reporting System. The Aviation Safety Reporting Program that it falls under, I think, was formalized in around maybe the late 1980s, and they began collecting data anonymously from people who were essentially reporting flight traffic dangers, uh, you know, things that would essentially present extreme danger for commercial pilots or for, you know, aviation professionals in other areas of of aviation, for instance, let's say if there's ice on a runway or there's a mechanical failure or something like that, you know, in a hangar, all these kinds of things would be reported anonymously so that it could remove the fear of repercussions from litigation and things like that from those doing the reporting. Um, so the majority of the kinds of things that you're going to find in something like the aviation report, uh, safety reporting um, database is going to be having to do with those kinds of professional hazards and those kinds of concerns. But there are a, minor, a minority of reports that I managed to find, along with the help of a couple of other dedicated researchers, that document similar reports to the flying rugby ball from last year that the uh, British pilot had observed. And they're remarkably similar. It tends to involve, in most instances, a commercial aircraft pilot or the crew aboard that uh, plane, uh, you know, sometimes it's the uh, co-pilot, sometimes several individuals, sometimes only one, the individuals aboard these aircraft will see something moving toward the plane or moving nearby or moving close to the plane or adjacent to it. Almost always it's described as being torpedo or missile or rocket-shaped. Um, less often is there a report of a contrail or a jet trail being produced by the object. Whatever it is, it moves through the air, it moves very quickly. Many instances, these objects come very close to colliding with the commercial aircraft or whatever aircraft in question. And so it's kind of unsettling because, again, what we appear to be dealing with is some sort of a technology that, to the best that I could discern, behaves a lot like a drone or like a missile technology. They can't seem to account for these. Uh, in at least a few instances, these aircraft appear to be corroborated with radar data. And yet, if they were drones has been pointed out to me by listeners of my podcasts and people who read my books, drones typically operate via certain channels, as it were, and you know, typically you should be able to account for where you would assume that a drone is going to be or where a drone should be operating. Now, I'm sure that there are secret operations and things that may take place from time to time in which circumstances we wouldn't be so easily able to access that kind of information. But when we're talking about civilian pilots flying commercial airliners over, for instance, the continental United States, I, I have to wonder what kind of a secret operation at that kind of altitude would involve a drone aircraft that nearly collides with a commercial airliner that can't be accounted for. You know, that's a very strange set of circumstances. And these things don't, in a lot of instances, seem to resemble known drones like the Navy's XF-7B or the Predator drones that we hear about in the news so often. So we have to examine a couple of possibilities, Richard. We have to look at either a kind of drone technology 
that is behaving very differently and looks very differently from what we know to exist, or we have to take into consideration something else that we can't account for in terms of our general knowledge base. But whatever it is, the ghost rockets problem, as I uh, you know call them, the ghost rockets using that ufological term, it seems to present something that we can't fully account for with history and with science. I don't think that it's beyond the possibility that these things could be man-made. It's just we don't know exactly what they are. They're much like drones. Well, uh, regrettably, we've only got about um, a, a minute here, and uh, we got you on a little later than we expected, so we'll have to have you back on, because I, there is a chapter in there uh, regarding TWA Flight 800, of course, which crashed off the coast of, uh, of Long Island back in 1996, I think it was, and there were something like 230 people on board who were killed, uh, and the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, you know, discussed the possibility or... or, or whether there might have been a criminal act, and and uh, basically they said that it was an explosion of uh, vapors in the fuel tank. But, of course, there were all those eyewitness accounts, people seeing what looked like a rocket being fired up at the, uh, up at the plane, um, which led some to speculate that maybe it was a missile strike from a terrorist or a U.S. Navy uh, vessel that crashed, uh, caused the crash. But it could have been a phantom rocket. That's a possibility, and I know time's, of course, creeping up on us here. It's, it's so frustrating, Richard, because I'm literally standing here picking up my landline. I still haven't got a signal. I've never had my landline telephone go down the night of an interview like this. But I can tell you this, with regard to TWA Flight 800, uh, there's probably a whole program that could be done about that alone, and I'll just leave you with a teaser for that. In the book, rather than looking at that instance unto itself, I document no less than three other instances in the weeks and months before and even after the TWA Flight 800 crash that seemed to document the presence of missiles or rockets flying over Long Island Sound that are as yet unexplained. And uh, if we look at that in the greater context of people reporting an object streaking up in the sky toward that aircraft, I don't want to come on and say, hey, look, yeah, a missile took down TWA Flight 800. I think other people have tried to present a very strong case for that, and I've seen some compelling evidence myself. My book, The Ghost Rockets, the chapter on that looks at other instances where objects were seen, and I think that there's some something clearly that was going on around that time that needs to be looked into a little bit more uh, All right. carefully. Micah, we will uh, we'll get you back on, and we'll uh, we'll give this uh, the time that it deserves. The ghost rockets, mystery missiles, and phantom projectiles in our skies. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Richard. Micah Hanks. All right, back next week, Rosemary Allen Guiley will join us with another paranormal investigation. Tim Spreen, thanks for production. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.